What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all of its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work-in-progress host, Harv, and as always, I hope you're having a bloody fantastic day, wherever you may find yourself. And uh, if you do find yourself, uh, let yourself know where you are, so that, uh, you know, because you're probably worried sick. So I pretty much hate it when podcasters talk about their podcast before they actually start the podcast. So I'm not going to do that, but I did want to give you a quick update on uh, my relationship with the microphone. Um, We did go out for a steak and I've got to say, uh, Mike was the worst date I've ever had. He uh, ordered the most expensive thing on the menu and then didn't eat it. And now I, I don't excuse him just because he doesn't have a mouth. At the end of it, I just figured, uh, you know, we should split the bill 50-50. Uh, but do you know what? I got the cold shoulder when I suggested that. So worst date ever. Thanks a lot, Mike. And, uh, you know, it, I really don't like having you as close to my face as you are now. But I guess we're stuck with each other. So we'll just forge ahead. Um, today I wanted to talk about the concept of consciousness. And, you know, I even hesitate to say the word. I, I There's just something about the whole question of consciousness and the pursuit of, you know, what is consciousness? What does it mean? You know, uh, making consciousness this central point of our lives, uh, like, um, you know, guys like Sam Harris seem to do. He's constantly talking about consciousness, consciousness this, consciousness that. And it's something that I think about a lot, which I guess proves consciousness exists. But at the same time, I still don't really know what they're talking about when they say consciousness. Um, But I do want to talk about it because I did have a thought about what consciousness is. And uh, a long time ago, the first thing I came across to explain consciousness was simply the concept that consciousness is the fact that we can remember the past and use that to form the context of the present. And it creates, and it was expressed as an illusion in this theory. And I I can't remember, this was back in university in 1990 something, you know, I, I probably wore funny pants and had a gay hairstyle and I, you know, I can't remember the source of all of this, but I think it's a pretty common interpretation of consciousness and I guess a fairly superficial one as well. But it did make sense to me at the time um, that, you know, without memory, you can't really have consciousness. You know, it's, it's kind of a question, I guess, that's brought up by that film Memento. If you cannot remember uh, the, you know, the previous moment, what is your context for the current moment? And if you don't have a context, then how can you have a sense of self? 
And that's what consciousness is, right? It's the, it's the self, I guess, or, or perhaps the way Sam Harris phrases it, it's outside of the self. Or once you get past the self and the ego, you find your pure consciousness. See, I'm already confused. I just don't really get it. Um, in my mind, I think consciousness is more of a, a practical thing. I, I still think probably in some ways it's a bit of an illusion. And I know that really upsets people, but I don't think it really needs to. Um, consciousness doesn't really need to be like a spiritual thing or a magical thing. And let's face it, everything we feel is an illusion because they're all chemicals that flow through our brains and bodies. Um, that trigger emotions and cause physical responses. Uh, we can demystify pretty much anything that goes on in our heads. And if we don't understand consciousness now, that doesn't mean we never will. Um, and I'm sure the whole thing will be ruined and demystified eventually. Um, but my thought was, what if consciousness is more than just memory, but it's the sum of all the experiences beliefs and knowledge that we've accumulated up to this point. So everything we believe and think and, and, and the constructs that we have by which we define ourselves are just the context of everything that we've experienced and known up to this point. It's a concept that has a lot of implications for this thesis of story that we discuss in this podcast. Because what it really means is if consciousness is really just the sum of all the information stored in our brains, then we better be pretty damn careful what information we allow to enter our minds. In my early part of my career and continues, uh, I studied patients who had their two brains disconnected. What we were responsible for was working out the functions of each hemisphere. You could work with them independent of the other influencing it. So you kind of got to study it alone. And over many, many years, uh, the basic finding is, of course, that one brain didn't know what the other one was doing in such people that the information doesn't transfer between the brains. We found out that in the left brain, there's a special system that seems to always want to explain actions and moods that we have after they occurred. So we would put a question to the right non-speaking hemisphere, and it, in effect, would direct the left hand to do something. And uh, so the patient would do that. And then we would simply say to the patient, well, why did you do that? The patient would make up a story that would explain why their hand had done one thing and why the other hand had done another thing, and wove a tale that made coherent the, as it were, the behaviors that are coming from all these separate brain areas. The behavior comes out and then there's this little narrator up there that turns it into a story that makes this feel coherent and unified. That's Michael Gazaniga there um, on the Big Think channel on YouTube. And that's something we're going to talk about later, possibly. Certainly we're going to cover it a lot more. But I just wanted to get you thinking about how this concept works, that we are in a way the narrators of the events of our lives and that we may not be as in control of them as we think. So last week I made the point that um, a story can be used for good and it can be used for evil. Um, and 
I think for this podcast, I'd like to just go through a few examples of positive and negative ways that story can influence our minds. Um, so I, I wanted to start with the basketball experiment, and this is something that I've known about for a long time, read about it years ago, and uh, when I thought to bring it up on the podcast this week, uh, I had to go back and research to find if this thing was actually a, a real experiment or not. But the basic premise is this. A guy called Alan Richardson performed an experiment with three groups of basketballers. The first group practiced free throws every day for 20 days. The second group didn't practice at all. And the third group just visualized practicing. So they just imagined it in their heads without ever touching a ball. So after the 20 days, uh, Richardson measured the percentage of improvement in each group. And he found that, of course, the group that actually practiced had a 24% improvement, as you would probably expect. The second group, who didn't practice at all, was still shithouse. So they were still losers. And, uh, you know, you would expect that too. The surprising part is that the third group actually achieved a 23% improvement in their free throw ability. So visualizing was almost as good as practicing for real. So I don't know about you, but I find that pretty interesting because it implies that just putting information, visualization, uh, you know, imaginary stuff into your mind can actually make you capable of things that you wouldn't have been capable of otherwise. So it, I guess it pertains to things like world records and so on. Once someone set a world record and people around the world have seen it done, then it makes it possible to beat that world record. And there was times when we thought it was going to be impossible to, to beat the, uh, you know, the four-minute mile or whatever, and now it's done routinely by very average athletes or they're probably exceptional. I, I do not know athletes. Okay, look, just I hope I didn't insult anyone who's done the four-minute mile. I'm sure it's amazing. I'm very impressed, all right? So I suppose all of this stuff about the power of the mind and the power of information begs the question, does the information need to be true to influence the way you think. A moment ago, we made this volunteer believe she sunk a pair of blindfolded free throws, when earlier, with no blindfold, she missed 10 in a row. How will she do her second time at the line, now that she thinks she nailed those blindfolded buckets? Oh, close! <laughs> so close, so close, that's number one. All right, keep it going, keep it going. She's definitely getting closer, but no baskets yet. You got this, you got this, you got this. Oh! Yes! Oh! Wow, by making her think she sank those blindfolded shots, and by cheering and giving her positive reinforcement, it's almost like we hacked her self-confidence and got her to believe more in her natural abilities. Oh! In fact, out of 10 shots this time around, she ended up making four. Quite an improvement. So it's just a dodgy National Geographic YouTube video, um, but it does make the point um, that the power of positive thought can make you better at free throws, even without additional practice. Um, just the idea that you've been successful in the past makes you more likely to be successful in the future. But does it work both ways? Well, um, they did that experiment as well. It's a tough one. All right. Wow. 
Let's give it a shot, Josh. The man, the man is blind. Okay, let's go ahead and take off the blindfold. So listen, it wasn't as easy as we thought, but let's yeah. have you do your, your 10 throws again without the blindfold. Okay. Just do your thing, nine out of 10, maybe 10 out of 10. Okay. All right, let's see. You guys uh, got his, his A game on? <laughs> Come on, Josh. Whoa. All right, Josh, you got this, man. You got this. All right, that's two. Remember, this guy made nine free throws earlier, but now it looks like the crowd's negative reinforcement is throwing him off his game. So there you go, Josh, you piece of shit. There's your basketball career over. Uh, you got booed a couple of times and you crumpled like a sack of shit. Um, you probably uh, got the point there, even though obviously that's a video and you can't see the result of him doing his free throws. Uh, but yeah, he missed them. Poor Joshy Josh, eh? Just uh, just couldn't, couldn't deal with the negativity. But I guess we've all felt that way at times. Uh, you know, if you surround yourself with negative people, uh, it's pretty hard to get anything done. So I guess you've probably worked out what the point is here. Um, I'm saying that story has the same kind of power over you as positive thinking, as visualization, and that uh, even a fictional story can influence you in ways that you may not be able to predict. I want to tell you a story about a little boy named Ben. Ben is two and a half years old, and Ben has brain cancer. And Ben's really happy. He's happy because he's been through two rounds of chemo and radiation, and he feels good for once. He doesn't feel yucky, and his father's enjoying seeing Ben's happiness. But as the father tells the story of Ben and his cancer, the father's voice begins to break. And he says, you know, it's very difficult to play with Ben because Ben thinks everything is wonderful, but I know something that Ben doesn't, that Ben's dying. And he talks about how difficult it is to play with Ben, knowing that in three or six months, Ben will be dead. And yet Ben is so happy, he's so beautiful. And so the father tries as hard as he can to enjoy Ben, to be joyful around Ben. But then he says in the middle of this short story that it's an amazing thing to know how little time one has left. And as he says that statement, he has merged himself with his son. It's as if the father himself is dying. So in my laboratory, we've studied this story extensively. And what we found is that two primary emotions were elicited. One is distress and the other is empathy. At the same time, when we asked people what they felt after the story was over, we really couldn't get very clear answers. So we began doing other studies on this story. So we took blood before and after, and we found that the brain produced two interesting chemicals. One is called cortisol, which focuses our attention on something important. So cortisol correlated with our sense of distress. So the more distress you felt, the more cortisol you released, and the more you paid attention to that stimulus. The second chemical release is called oxytocin, which is associated with care and connection and empathy. And oxytocin was correlated with people's sense of empathy. And the more oxytocin they released, the more empathic they felt towards Ben and his father. 
Now, we did something different after this experiment. We gave individuals a chance to share money with a stranger in the lab. And indeed, those who produced both cortisol and oxytocin were more likely to donate money generously to a stranger they couldn't see in the lab. In fact, the amount of oxytocin release predicted in both cases how much money people would share with a stranger with charity. So pretty interesting stuff because, uh, you know, the implications of that research are that story can actually make you a better person. And when I was younger, I had, I think, a pretty serious problem with empathy. And I, I don't mean I like had a problem with empathy, like, uh, you know, I was going to EA meetings and standing up and saying, uh, my name is Harvey. I have a problem with empathy. Um, today, I gave money to a homeless person and literally gave candy to a baby. No, um, I didn't have enough empathy. And I felt like I didn't care enough about the people in my life family, friends, uh, everybody who was close to me. Um, I felt like I could walk away from them all at, a, at the drop of a hat and not really care. Um, and in some ways that was a freeing thought, but in other ways it terrified me because I felt like that made me abnormal. And I actually worked on my empathy. I actually uh, uh, tried to inform myself about the suffering of others, and it was a pretty important skill, of course, as a writer. I was able to watch someone and observe and understand intellectually what they were thinking and feeling, but I didn't feel it with them, and I thought that that was kind of an abnormal thing. And it is an abnormal thing. It's, it's called uh, sociopathy. It's called um, narcissism. It's called uh, psychopathy in very extreme cases. So it's something that, um, you know, I spent a good 10 years addressing and feel that I uh, am now in a place where I can genuinely care about things and people who, are, uh, who I come across in my life. And will you look at that, I went and made it about me. Ironic that you can be speaking about curing your own narcissism while acting narcissistic at the same time. So we've covered the positive side of uh, visualization, of story, of positive thinking. But what happens if you put negative thoughts into your little noggin there? If you let the darkness in, so to speak, can it be unhealthy? Is it dangerous? Is it something that uh, we should be cautioned on? And as I was considering this, one particular story popped into my head. Uh, it's a little bit tragic and one that, uh, you know, brace yourself. You may lose your erection. I don't know what's going to happen, but um, here it is. Oh, I was a map maker, if you will, a cartographer, going out to try and map how the world really worked as opposed to the way we were told it worked. And the map that we have made has proved so startlingly accurate over 10 years, whether it, they had to do with gold prices or geopolitical developments or economic events. The only thing that amazes me is the speed with which things are falling apart. And that message now is the single most important thing uh, in my life. It's the only thing in my life. Well, except for rock and roll music, good music, uh, playing with my dog and long walks on the beach. 
I first became an, uh, focused on energy issues uh, in late 2001, uh, just a, maybe a month or two after 9-11. I was contacted by a geologist, a brilliant guy named Dale Allen Pfeiffer, who introduced me to the concept of peak oil and the basic issues about energy and helped me to realize that there was a great deal of evidence in 2001, not only that peak oil was very real, but that government agencies were acting and responding as if it was very real. That's the voice of Michael C. Rupert uh, from a documentary film called Collapse, uh, which I believe was released around 2009. Um, I, I would have watched it probably in that year. Um, I was just getting into conspiracy theory and um, lapping up a lot of information that uh, implied that the world didn't operate the way I'd been taught it was. And his message kind of resonated with me at the time. Um, I was skeptical about it, I must admit, but uh, it gave me something to look into and it gave me a lot to think about. And Michael Rupert had a certain uh, very unique credibility at the time because uh, he was a uh, ex-CIA uh, LA police detective who had turned whistleblower after he discovered that the CIA was complicit in drug dealing activities in 1996. Um, you might not be familiar with the concept of peak oil. This is the idea that uh, we are currently using more and more oil over time, and we are able to get oil out of the ground less and less over time, and that makes it more expensive to get out of the ground. And peak oil is the point at which those two things intersect, and oil production can no longer meet demand. Now, this is obviously uh, the start of the collapse of human civilization, and Michael Rupert actually took it a little bit further than that by saying that the population of the earth can be correlated statistically with the production of oil. So he's saying basically that when we reach peak oil, and his argument is that we already had possibly in the 70s, the population has to decline in order to uh, deal with the fact that there's less oil coming out of the ground. Basically, without the oil, we can't support the population. And the population would have to be reduced one way or another. And his idea is that either we do it or nature would do it. So how does a guy deal with the idea that he has foreknowledge of billions of deaths and possibly the extinction of the entire planet? And of course, it ate him up. And you could see it throughout his uh, career as a conspiracy theorist, media um, personality. He got gradually more and more negative. Um, his views got more and more extreme. And he was unable to see an end. He believed it with such clarity and assuredness that he simply couldn't cope. The planet is being destroyed all around us. Using money to try to address that problem, it's shooting yourself in the foot. Evolve or perish, grow up or die. An entirely new level of human consciousness is needed right now. Or we're all dead. Mankind openly descends into world of bloodshed without end. Dog eat dog until everything is killed and the last man 
commits suicide or is poisoned, having all the toys and they mean nothing. When you believe you're already dead and you got nothing to live for, you fight better than you've ever fought in your life. When your back's to the wall, that's the only time when humans actually choose to evolve at the moment of death. At the moment when we face our destruction. That's when the greatest leaps in human consciousness and the leaps of human heart take place. I'm tired. I'm ready to die. Great. Bring it on. I'm not afraid of death at all. That'll be a big relief for me. That'll be graduation. God, I get out of this godforsaken shithole that I love more than anything else in the world. The scout's knife is sharp on both edges. It cuts in both directions. On April 13, 2014, Rupert was found dead in his Napa County home. Rupert died of a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. This was confirmed by a close friend and property owner and landlord Jack Martin. Martin found Rupert's body and suicide note. Fellow activist and close friend Abby Martin reported on Rupert's death on her show Breaking the Set. I have to close out this show today with a very heavy heart. This week the world lost a true warrior. Michael C. Rupert took his own life on April 13th after closing out his last radio show, The Lifeboat Hour. Mike and I spoke often. He would write me with his support for what I did and express the faith he had in my work. But Michael also struggled with depression and he'd announced many times that he was plagued with despair. There's only so much pain one can absorb and there's only so much burden of the world one can hold on their shoulders. And if anyone watched his series, Apocalypse Man on Vice, excuse me, you knew that death was the last thing he was afraid of. In fact, he seemed to embrace it as if it was a leap of evolution during the later months of his life. Michael, you were my friend and my spiritual brother. I took advantage of knowing that you were there and that you would be there when I needed a friend and confidant later on. But even though you won't physically be there, I know you still will be. And the rays of the sun and wind whipping through the air. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So rest in peace, Michael C. Rupert. Your insight and passion will be truly, truly missed. We'll do our best to carry on the struggle without you. But I truly regret not telling you just how much you were loved and needed by us. Now, I, I don't know if I believe in peak oil. I don't know if I believe the human innovation won't triumph uh, in the end, overcome the energy shortages or whatever that Michael's, Michael Report thought we were facing. But I do know for sure that the ideas in that man's head were what killed him in the end. that the beliefs that he held and the convictions that he struggled with were the thing that made him believe life was not worth 
continuing. So I guess the point of all this is be careful of the ideas that you admit into your mind, into your soul. Be careful that you don't let the negative thoughts creep in. Take time to notice the positives. Take time to imagine a better future. And when you feel despair and you feel overwhelmed, just remember, it's the simple things that get us through. And as someone who's lost a best friend to suicide, uh, I can give this advice. Listen to others, engage with them. And when someone's showing signs, like Michael Rupert obviously was, that they're not coping, talk to them, reach out, and you might not be able to do anything, but the worst thing is the feeling that you didn't try. Who are you to tell me it would have been easier to walk away? You weren't in my skin. It was never easier for me to walk away because to walk away would have meant to compromise. To walk away would have meant selling out. You know, I'm still a guy who 30 years ago approached his government as a citizen asking for redress of grievance. I cut the CIA deal in drugs. It's wrong. Somebody needs to talk about this. And I'm still that same guy. I'm still the 27-year-old about to be promoted, perfect record, perfect rating report, LAPD, dedicated, clean LAPD cop. He's still alive in me. And he very much wants some answers. We have waited have waited for so long for somebody to listen to us. When the mainstream press and the government says nobody could have predicted this, they're lying through their fucking teeth. We all said, saw exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen and remarkably when it was going to happen. None of us expected the collapse to be as severe as it's proving to be or as fast as it's proving to be. But we've been screaming for years and we've been watching everything we said come to pass and we have felt so angry. What will the final outcome be? I don't know. It's a movie. And it's a movie we're all living in. We don't know whether the movie has a happy ending, a sad ending. We don't know whether everyone dies uh, and everything else. So, so we don't know how it's going to end.